0: Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the
1: entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm
0: belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis.
1: Hey, folks. Today, I have Gregory Bouse on the show. He reached out to me one evening after hearing our show for the first time, and he said, it's good stuff, which is all you really have to say to me to draw me into a conversation. We chatted for a while, and it turns out he has an interesting story with a self-described nomadic lifestyle. He has also contributed to the Libertarian Christian Institute, and he sent the article over at my request, and it recovers Romans 13, which is not a subject I will ever shy away from hearing or talking about on the show, because it is important to have as many resources as possible on that subject because it is used so often by Christians who are still entangled with the state. We're going to talk about his article, we're going to talk about his nomadic lifestyle, as well as a reformed view of libertarian anarchy.
0: How are you doing today, sir? Hey, I'm well. Thanks. Thanks
1: for uh, the opportunity. Well, I'm glad to have you. I, I really enjoyed our conversation and, and it took longer than I wanted to to have you on the show because of work and everything that's going into this project is really keeping me busy. We're steady pumping out episodes and recording with people and stuff, so I've been pretty busy, but I, I'm glad to have you on today. Now, let's start out with you giving us a little background of yourself.
0: Okay, Uh, I don't know how much uh, people really care to know, but uh, I grew up in Baltimore, or uh, in the the Baltimore area. My father actually uh, worked for the government, like a lot of people in the sort of D.C., Baltimore region. When I was in middle school, we had a three-year period in Europe. So at the time, uh, it was West Germany. (laughs) We were in Munich, uh, so I lived there for my middle school years and then was back in the States for high school. And uh, I went to college initially at uh, Covenant College in northwest Georgia, southeast Tennessee near Chattanooga, and uh, I crammed four years into five, <laughs> as we say, and I uh, didn't finish, so I left there. Uh, I just I took my last two years part-time and uh, hadn't uh, – completed my degree and i was out of school for a while and then finally went back uh to a canadian a very similar reformed christian liberal arts college like covenant uh, It was called redeemer university in uh, ancaster ontario finished up a year there and then a couple of years later went to amsterdam where i did a graduate a master's in philosophy program although so that was about two years. That was 2005 to 2007. Although I kind of pooped out on my thesis. <laughs> and then I started my career as, a, uh, as an English teacher overseas. Although I had done some English teaching already in the past. But uh, I had the opportunity to start a master's program again. So I'm back at it trying to finish this uh, thesis.
1: That's awesome. I was reading your bio in preparation. And you said you apprenticed as a printer in Southern California, which caught my eye because I've been printing since I was 19 years old. What, what type of printing were you involved with?
0: Yeah, it was kind of cool. Actually, my uh, paternal grandfather, I found out, was also a printer. And so that was fun to have that tie into the family history. Uh, basically, I had moved out to California with a friend of mine who was going to seminary out there. And I was taking some evening classes at the seminary, but uh, I was just looking for any job that was available. And it just turned out this uh, print shop was looking for some help. And uh, they used this old silver plate style offset printing. And we just made you know business cards and diner advertisement uh, placemats and wedding invitations and uh, almost anything that anybody would ask for. It uses the old you know, four color style printing. And uh, I had never really done anything like that before. So it was a real learning experience for me. I haven't used it since, but. Uh. <laughs> I've been doing it since I was 19,
1: about to turn 20. And I I had, I, I started printing newspapers and I, I had no idea how newspapers printed prior to that. For some reason I had in my head, that it was some sort of like, people standing in a line just stamping things on paper and just passing along for other people to stamp things on paper Mm -hmm. and and i walked into this not knowing anything about it and i was an apprentice and it just kind of stuck with me now 26 years later 25 years later i'm still printing a flexo printer now where we print print labels and for like a purel hand sanitizer scott's lawn and garden type stuff and it's a lot cleaner than offset printing. I don't know how clean your offset printing was, but we... No, I had, pr- I had purple hands for two years. There was no way to get that ink out of your hands. and I, I, oh, The, yeah. the yeah. only way that I could figure it out... Now, flexo printing is a lot cleaner. I don't, I don't
0: have ink in my fingernails or nothing anymore, but... Yeah, that's amazing. The technology has, even at the time, so I was doing this around 1999, 2001... Uh the, you know the technology even then was just taking off and changing so rapidly, so we had like ancient machines uh compared to what was being developed at the time, so i can't imagine that well you know when I, when I first started printing it was on a
1: single wide press, and I worked for a newspaper in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and it was just a very local newspaper and then they got bought out by the statewide paper in Arkansas, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and they moved us to another uh printing facility and i walked into this place and it was a monster i was like there's no way i'm gonna be able to learn how to how to do this that press we were on was i think a lot of these this, the units were part of that were built back in the 1960s i would leave work sometimes like if you had to wrap up and you had to crawl into one of these units and dig paper out oh wow of these rollers uh-huh. i mean i would walk out with ink up to my armpits sometimes and like i was saying before, the, the only way to really, that I could find to get this ink out of my hands was to wash dishes by hand. And it would wash all this ink out of my hand.
0: I, I've, uh, I've also been a dishwasher. Yeah, that was one of my uh, first jobs, <laughs> washing dishes by hand at an Italian restaurant. Man, that was crazy. All right. So and you mentioned in our
1: messaging that you are studying Christian philosophy and obscurity. I'm interested to hear more about that. And is the Reform view of anarchism, part of that study.
0: Yeah, well, I'm. Stu- I am studying in obscurity, but I'm. <laughs> I'm uh, also studying some obscure philosophy. It, when I was in college, first time around, uh, I was introduced to a philosopher by the name of Herman Doivert, and uh, I have a web page up. If you go to Herman, H-E-R-M-A-N, dash, and then this is the difficult part, his last name, Doiverd. So Doiverd is spelled (laughs) D-O-O-Y-E-W-E-E-R-D. So Herman, yeah, it's a huge Dutch name. Herman-doiverd.blogspot.com. That's where I have a lot of his, uh, there's a translation project going on to bring his stuff into English. And so I have a lot of that material there. Anyway, I discovered him and that sort of you know gelled really um with a lot of my interests. Things I had read earlier. I just thought, oh, this is exactly you know what I was looking for. Anyway, I got sucked in pretty hard. So it's a it's a disease that once you catch, there's no cure, someone said. So anyway, I I've spent my life since then devoted to studying his work and the school of thought that, was, uh, that he helped found and was built up around it. Uh, it's an extension of what has been called Neo-Calvinism, not to be confused with other movements with similar names. N- Neo-Calvinism was largely founded by Abraham Kuyper, uh, who was once prime minister of the Netherlands, but uh, he was a church reformer and a journalist, and he founded the university where I attended, and where Hermann Doiverd was a professor. So I basically went there to study his philosophy. And uh, I might compare it to something as expansive as, you know, Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas. It's a pretty comprehensive perspective. And he approaches it from a distinctly reformed Christian understanding. The, one of the interesting things is, is that he wasn't just trying to set out sort of a foundational philosophical view of reality and how we know it and so on, but also an approach that could serve as a foundation for the particular uh, different areas of study, of academic or theoretical study. And he himself was a law professor of uh, jurisprudence or legal studies so he also applied his philosophy in that area and so i had an interest in uh, political philosophy and that kind of thing and uh yeah doiver has been very helpful although he wasn't himself exactly libertarian or an anarchist he certainly wasn't an anarchist um i found his Philosophy in general, and his social philosophy and political philosophy, to be really fruitful in thinking through a lot of these issues, and in some ways, uh, thinking about his views contributed to my becoming more libertarian and becoming an anarchist.
1: Let me let me ask you something real quick. Were you always like? At what point in your life did you become an anarchist? How did that start? Because I know my story, but I'm always interested to hear other people's story. And is this, when studying this stuff, is that what led you to anarchy or were you an already, already an anarchist or how did you get to where you are now or where did you start from and then how did you
0: get to where you are now? Well, it's funny. I, I don't remember uh, when I first consciously came to faith, right? I was raised in a Christian home. And so uh, I don't remember a time when I didn't know and love the Lord, but I remember specifically when the light bulb flipped on and I became an anarchist. And uh, it was, uh, I think it was the 15th of October, 2008. So we're coming up on the 12th.
1: Well, that's pretty cool that you have a date. (laughs) Yeah, I remember the moment. Yeah, Yeah, That's awesome because I don't remember the day that I became an anarchist because when I first moved to Memphis, I was still a statist. Uh One of the first things I did when I moved to Memphis was register to vote. And I was trying to find some local libertarian groups to get involved with to help them get elected. So I, the more I was, the longer I was here and the more I, I studied anarchy and, and anarchism, it just kind of happened. And, but it was all kind of coming together with my faith. Like it all started making more sense when I could compare it to my faith in Christ and how they just coincide or, or they just they mesh so well together for me. And it just, I was like, it's like a light bulb went off, but I don't remember the specific time it happened. I just woke up one day and it was, it was, it's, it's what it is.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Well, yeah. So we're coming up on my uh, 12th Anarchaversary, <laughs> as I like to call it. So, you know, pretty early on, I don't know when I first started thinking about political things, middle school or high school came somewhat politically conscious. And I suppose it was the uh, pro-life movement that sort of spurred that on more so. So there there wasn't a presidential election until I was 19. So I'd sort of, whatever the voting age is, 18. So the next year, I think that was 92. I'm probably getting the dates wrong. I can't remember. Anyway, my my family was already somewhat uh, constitutionalist. My parents were. So I was in those circles. But... Whenever it was nineteen ninety two or so, um Howard Phillips of what was then, I believe, called the US Taxpayers Party, became the Constitution Party, visited campus, and I had some chats with him, and basically I was totally on board with that. I was like, Yes, that this makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, he emphasized the importance of the Tenth Amendment and how that basically renders everything The federal government does illegal. So that so I I became a member of the party. I I was never a member of the uh, uh, Republican Party until uh, actually I I switched my membership so I could uh, vote for Ron Paul in the primary in two thousand eight. But gradually, when was it around two thousand? When I was in grad school, two thousand six, two thousand seven, I sort of began an independent study in economics and uh, was helped a lot by the resources at the Mises Institute, and uh, it was the understanding economics better that helped push me over the edge into anarchism. I was listening to a series of lectures by Roderick Long, and he was sort of giving a Lockean critique of Locke. Carrie Baldwin has this great uh, article that sets that up a little bit, her first article in a series of four on answering objections to minarchism, I forget the exact title, minarchism, anarchism, legitimacy of a state or something. Uh, So she lays it out there. It would be a good intro to to what I was getting from, uh, from Long. And he explains this is how Locke and basically the Lockean tradition thought of the necessity of having a state. And then basically showed how all his criteria undermined themselves and were actually reasons for statelessness, for not having a state. And for anyone not getting the connection there, the American Revolution and uh, the U.S. Constitution were sort of very Lockean in their orientation. And so essentially this was the basis upon which I accepted the legitimacy of a state. And so that undermined it. <laughs> when I was shown that Locke's own reasons, uh, basically what he argued for, for having a state were reasons not to have one, in fact, that just did it. You know, I, I saw it. I think what I needed immediately after that to really be comfortable with my new convictions was some kind of practical alternative. Right. So. If someone was to come to understand that the state's not legitimate, but then feel like, well, well, what then? You know, well, you know, I'm just left with nothing. Um, you know, you need, you need, you can't beat. I forget who said this. It might have been Gary North, for heaven's sakes. But anyway, uh, you can't beat something with nothing, right? So to help answer objections or to show people the truth about the state, they're going to try to hold on to those things unless you give them a positive alternative to replace, right? Sort of like the bad habits, good habits thing. It's hard to get rid of a bad habit unless you're actually replacing it with a good habit. That works for habits of mind as well. So I needed an understanding of how stateless civil governance could operate. And there were some you know, a, a number of things that helped me see that pretty quickly. So w- once my Lockeanism was undermined by Locke, <laughs> I, uh, you know, was able to sort of see the the practicality and legitimacy of a stateless civil governance. That's interesting. I, when you mentioned the Constitution Party,
1: and people that have listened to this know my story, I think, for the most part. But I voted Republican since George W. Bush until 2016 when Trump was nominated, and I looked into libertarianism. I did not like Gary Johnson. Then I heard about this guy named Daryl Castle. And at the time that I was studying the Constitution, it was all kind of happening at the same time. He was the only person that was even talking about the Constitution. Libertarians weren't talking about it. Republicans weren't talking about it. Democrats certainly weren't talking about it. With the sole exception of Ron Paul, right? All those years. Right, right. And we'll see. And even and I said I've mentioned this in the past as well. But even with Ron Paul, I I didn't get to where I'm at because of Ron Paul, because whenever Ron Paul was Mm -hmm. running, I was one of those guys booing him off the stage. Right, right. And but, you know, looking back now, he was right all along. And I wish I had latched on to what he was saying then, because this transition would have happened a lot sooner than than what it did for me because I spent so many times so much energy trying to get people to vote Republican because I was scared to death of the Democrats well when you look at it they're they're the same people, just with a different letter by their name. But when I heard about Daryl Castle, that was the last time I voted was and I voted for him and I'll say this, and I'm not an advocate for voting, but That was the first time that I voted for a presidential candidate that I did not feel bad about it when I left, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And right. Yeah. We as anarchists, we uh, don't put any stock in the political process. But if there are political efforts, including, you know, voting for this or that candidate that can move things towards liberty and the constitution party certainly is pro-liberty their policies would be a million times better than the democrats or the republicans yeah so i think uh, people who are pro-liberty and he was very accessible too i remember him having a, a live
1: stream on facebook and we got to ask him questions and there were libertarians that that were in these discussions too that they did not they weren't latching on to gary johnson either right and they were looking for something else too. And a lot of libertarians voted for Daryl Castle, you mm-hmm. know, and it was interesting to see. And then <laughs> libertarians fight with each other constantly. <laughs> and it was funny to watch right. libertarians fight with each other. Why don't you vote for Gary Johnson? We've got to get that 3%. We got it. And I'm like, well, 3% is not going to win you anything. It's just going to get you on the ballot next time. But you're not voting on principle. And it, it was that's one thing that's so frustrating to me about people with politics these days. And at the time of this recording, we're heading up to the, ne- the next election with Trump and Biden. And there is absolutely no reason to vote for either one of these guys. And when I said I'm not an advocate for voting, I st- when I talk to folks, I'm like, if you still feel the need no, to vote, not. choose a third party, find somebody else. If you have any principle
0: about what you're doing, vote for a third party candidate, yes. because these two guys, are you kidding me? If you're not voting for someone that supports your principles, you might as well just throw in the towel. I mean, what's the deal?
1: And that was a tough pill for me to swallow, too, because, like I said, I was a hardcore Republican. Like, you know, right after 9-11, I turned into a full-fledged neocon. And even at the time when I was when I started studying the Constitution, I understood that. And I learned and then I learned this, too. We hadn't been in a a constitutionally declared war since World War Two. So everything we've been doing According to the Constitution, with these wars that we're involved with, they've all been illegal according to what the Constitution says. And that was a tough pill for me to swallow as as well. But I had to. And then you have to kind of repent of your past transgressions in voting or or supporting a party just because you were afraid of another party. And I think that's the biggest problem with voting these days is people are voting out of fear and not voting on on principle.
0: Oh, yeah, I would I would say. I don't know. I don't know how to guess exactly, but I would not be surprised if 80 percent on both sides were uh, of Republican and Democrats. They're just voting for their guy because they dislike the other guy. Exactly. I think I think everybody has that sense.
1: That's that's the facts. So being raised in West Texas, that's I mean, that's red. That's that's Republican as Republican can get. And so a lot of my family are still going to support Trump no matter what, and they think he's the greatest thing since Jesus. Now, it's and it's very frustrating. I, if it was not for this project and trying to keep in contact with my friends and family, I would probably shut social media completely down until all of this is over because it's so it's just it's just there all the time, and I I'm just I'm tired of it. I want people to stop voting, <laughs> or if you're going to vote go vote for somebody that's not part of the duopoly because those two, th- those two parties are the same, the same. There might be slight differences, but when you get down to the brass tacks of it, they are the same people.
0: It, it is uh good for your psychological health to uh, ignore mainstream media, especially during election seasons. So, you know, I I'd encourage people to unplug so to speak. And during this time, you know, ma- make a resolution to uh, not consciously, not purposefully listen to or discuss anything political until uh, until uh, Thanksgiving or something. <laughs> <laughs> It'd probably probably be a good exercise, right? Just sh- just shut it all out from now until then, and you know you'd probably be happier.
1: Well, and I I, I say this, I've, t- I've talked about my mom before, and I'm very I was very proud of her for stepping outside of the box in 2006. And she did vote for Gary Johnson. Mm -hmm. And, but I was proud of her for doing that because like I said, we came from a strong line
0: of Republicans. Right. So it was a big step. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. And so I was very proud of her and I don't know, I know in talking to her now, and I've told her this more than once, I said, you're an anarchist. You just don't know it yet (laughs) because she's so sick of all of it. Yeah. She goes, I'm tired of all of them. But there's there's things about anarchy that that scare folks because they don't I don't they don't completely understand it. Right. Like, well, what are what are we going to like? They think it's total chaos. Yeah. And it's not what anarchy is. I mean, it's one thing that that drew me to anarchism is, is it focuses on the individual mm-hmm. individualism, even back in the day as a Republican that was still something that was part of my DNA is I was more inter- interested in the individual, but I was going about it the wrong way because that's all collectivism. And I, I, that collectivism is a bad word to me. I cannot stand the whole thought of it. And when you, cause when you start getting into that mindset, you have the individual completely disappears.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, I, I feel like, uh, part of what you're saying is that on a kind of intuitive So to speak on an intuitive level uh, people with a conscience uh, are not happy with at least politics as they're practiced they may not realize entirely that what they're really unhappy with is the fact of the state itself but this operates in people of moral conscience in the background and what they need is an articulate if not you know, a philosophy as such, if not like a super theoretical uh, explication of it, they just need something s- slightly more articulate to express why their conscience is speaking the truth, why they're bothered, why they hate it in their guts. Uh, you know, that's a moral intuition and uh, they're right. They need to embrace that, not not stamp that down. And so hopefully through explaining to people more about libertarianism, we can foster and encourage their gut feelings about the wrongness of state politics. Yeah, the libertarian philosophy is, is I love what they talk about. And,
1: and I told you before we started recording, I, I steer clear of calling myself a libertarian anarchist. I just stick to anarchy because I, there's, and you even mentioned this, there's baggage with anything. Yeah. Right. Because when I when I say libertarian, my first thought is, and what people are going to hear, they're they they're thinking about a political party. And so and they're, and then you have libertarians, well what about the big L little L? I said, I don't care. I don't care if that L's little or big. I don't care. It's there's a it's attached to the party regardless. Now we can talk about the philosophy behind it, mm-hmm. but I steer clear of it because I don't want that attached to it. Now I, I use the term anarchy because I like the reaction it gets from people. It opens a door for me to explain what it actually means on an individual. You know, talking to an individual. Now, if I got if I had a room full of people trying to talk to them about anarchism, they're not going to listen to me because they're all whispering among themselves. This guy's crazy. You know, when when I first started understanding anarchy, when I when I get involved with these libertarian groups, there were anarchists hanging out, and I still don't understand how the two got together. I mean, I guess it's the philosophy or not, but. When I would listen to anarchists, they—I was like, "These people are crazy." There's no way this would ever work. But when I really started listening to them, and if you could find an anarchist, it was not a total snark, which we're very snarky as anarchists. I get it. And just listening, and they would just have a conversation with you. That's what helped me get there. And like you said, like an art being articulate about it. I'm not very articulate, and. I can only say things. I think I'm better online talking than I am like talking to a person because it's easier. I can I have time to think about what I'm going to say. Right. It's hard to do extemporaneously. Yeah. Right. But one thing they always talked about was individualism. And it, just something that I kept going back to. is that They were the only people talking about individualism. The individual. There wasn't a, a libertarian, a Republican, a Democrat talking about. They were talking about we. Now, I want to talk to you. You know what I'm saying? So that's what drew me to anarchy more, I think, the more I understood it. And like I mentioned earlier, the more I studied anarchy, putting it with my faith, I was like, you know what? I think those folks back then were anarchists. They didn't call themselves anarchists. But if you look at the early church, they had absolutely nothing to do with the state. It wasn't their thing.
0: Well, I think that raises a, a one issue. Uh, maybe it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but just to mention it, that when you're saying that uh one of the things that attracted you and y- you found helpful in articulating it to other people is individualism i think that is also misunderstood uh broadly by people and as though that were somehow atomistic and we don't live in communities and denying the reality of community but of course i i, I know what you're saying and i embrace uh, a form of individualism in as far as saying that uh you know there's individual responsibility and it's individuals who act but that's not to, to deny the reality of communities or the importance of communities or it's not to reduce it's not an individualistic view of society to say that there are individual rights and individual rights need to be protected and there is such a thing as individual responsibility and that gets all neglected and wiped away in a collectivistic understanding. So we want to reject a collectivist view of society.
1: Yeah. And I think that that makes sense because I, I think when I do talk about that, maybe that's, maybe i come across as just that, you know, you're not, there's still a society. It can be an anarchist society. You know what
0: I'm saying? But it's,
1: I don't know. <laughs> like
0: yeah. I think, I think what you, I think what you're promoting over and against popular conceptions is a uh, totally necessary and right, but at the same time, there's some nuance required or just specification of what you mean because some people view individualism as a negative term just because they're conceiving of it in some kind of absolutistic sort of anti-community fashion. Uh, I was recently on a panel discussion with some folks from the Reformed Libertarianism Facebook discussion group, and that was one of the common objections we tried to address. I'll I'll give you the link for that at the end. People might be interested in listening to that. Hey folks, Craig here, and I'd like to let y'all
1: know we are always looking for riders to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors have no prior experience riding, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page. And you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. All right, so let's get into this article a little bit. So in this article, it's titled Romans 13 and Stateless Civil Governance, a Reform View. And I, when I was reading through this last night, there was something that I came across that you said in there. that I found this very interesting. It's, it's not something that I've, I've never heard it put this way. And I like, like what you said in it. And Portion, you said to answer a possible objection when the passage in verses six and seven says, for this reason, you must also pay tribute and in parentheses you say, or taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. That is that is the administration of justice. Render, therefore, to all their dues, taxes, taxes to whom taxes are due, and so on. And you'll notice that this passage does not say, and no scripture actually ever says that anyone in fact owes a tax. Rather, it says, if you owe, then you pay what you owe. For example, if we choose to use a toll road, then we would owe the toll. And I, I I love that because, like I said, I've never heard it put that way. And it, it makes a lot of sense because, like I said, Romans 13 is thrown in our face quite a bit. And I think that's an interesting take on, on those two verses.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, what's interesting is that uh, in the Roman Empire, some people were exempt from taxes. So it wouldn't even make sense for Paul to say, you know, uh, everyone's morally obligated to pay taxes because it just wasn't a fact that everyone paid taxes or had to pay taxes. So that that's one aspect of it. You know, it wouldn't even make sense for him to say everyone has to pay taxes because not everybody did. I mean, even the Roman Empire wasn't even claiming taxes from everybody. That That's the first thing. But uh, the fact is, is that people, especially uh Christ and uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they approached him about taxation and he made that famous declaration render under Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. People foolishly, you know, almost insanely think that means he's endorsing taxes. <laughs> but I'm mean, just crazy that the, I don't know how they would ever get that. But, you know, they they turn that into Jesus saying we should pay our taxes, and then they assume that this part in Romans 13 says, oh, yeah, we have to pay taxes. But there's just no place in Scripture that ever says that. And so the issue is always what is actually owed. And so, you know, that's just being uh, reinforced here in this this part.
1: What's always interesting to me when another Christian will will drop Romans 13, like you can be in... I don't know about you, but I could be talking to somebody online about government and how we're not supposed to be a part of that as Christians. They will drop, they will just drop Romans 13 verses 1 through 7 and not say anything else about it. Like they've just won an argument and they don't understand what it's saying. You know, in Romans 13, it says to submit and in Acts 5, it says to obey. There's two different, if you read the, the two words in the Greek, there's two different definitions. And I try to explain that to them, but they just kind of go silent. Like, it's like they just, they drop Romans 13 and then they go about their day. Like they just won the argument. And this is why this subject is not something that I will ever shy away from having a conversation on on the show, because it's so important to get so many different ideas on this. We, I think we all understand it as Christian anarchists. We understand what it means. But i like to hear your perspective on it because you're going to be able to resonate with somebody that I can't that is listening to this or somebody that's listening to this, that has to deal with the same thing with other Christians dropping this verse and then just leaving a conversation. But I think with you being able to explain it, like you that you could explain it and then somebody's like, yeah, I'm going to use what Gregory said, because that is going to be good in this debate.
0: Yeah. I think, I think this perspective uh, held by the majority of the, Reformers between the uh, 16th and 17th centuries, 1500s, 1600s, it can be useful for you know for understanding even among those Christians who aren't necessarily Reformed Protestants. But I think that there is something to the fact that the word "submit" is not the same word as "obey," and they have different connotations or nuances or meanings. But I think more directly and more sort of uh, strongly, what's often misunderstood and what the reformers understood clearly and that I think needs to be recovered is that the ordination of civil governance made clear in this passage does not speak to necessarily de facto existing powers. So when it says the powers that be, and, and I basically you know try to articulate this in the article, when it says the powers that be or the existing or the governing authorities in verse 1, some people take that, those first two verses, to basically say something like, if there's someone in power, that is ordained by God. It's, it's understandable how it could be read that way, but that's not actually what it's saying. What it's saying is, is that someone only has authority from God. Someone is only ordained by God if they're doing what it is that God ordains. One technical way of expressing the difference is it's not a providential ordination. It's a prescriptive or moral ordination. So God is saying, what I'm ordaining is the administration of civil justice. Not simply taking the sword in your hand and doing with it what you will, be it tyrannical or evil. That's not what God's ordaining. So the only legitimate powers are those which God authorizes to do that thing, which he's instituting, which is the administration of civil justice. So that passage doesn't say submit to tyrants or submit to evil laws or anything like that. And so that's the, I think that's the real key. That's the understanding of the passage that the Reformers had that Christians today need to rediscover and embrace. That's a very clear teaching, even though it's been muddled quite a bit.
1: Right. And I, I, and I love that take on it, too, because I think that is misunderstood. Just because somebody's in power doesn't mean that they're doing what God <laughs> wants them to be doing, and that they're not doing what God wants them to be doing, then we are not to obey them or submit to them.
0: Yeah. And and now there are some people, even uh, reformed believers who say, well, this passage is talking about God's providential ordination. You know, just the fact that they have power, you know, they're the de facto sword bearers. They're the people who have coercive control. And just that fact, yes, God is saying we need to submit to them in some way. And then the way they qualify it is to say, well, that doesn't mean that God approves of everything they're doing or that everything they're doing is moral or that we should necessarily go along with anything immoral. So I think that's a better reading. And I think maybe that's, that fits with our sense of right and wrong. Of course, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go along with uh, evil or that somehow that's excused or god wants us to go along with evil that 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 doesn't make any sense they end up uh, people end up twisting in their minds just saying well since god ordains these people providentially they're the de facto rulers they must not be doing evil when clearly what they're doing is evil you know they get all sorts of confused thinking about that so separating that out is a better way of reading it but i still think it's not the correct it's not actually what paul's saying in the passage what paul's actually saying in the passage is that only the powers that God authorizes to fulfill this specific role of administering civil justice, those are the only ordained powers.
1: I had uh, Keith Giles and Jason Porterfield on, and we got to talking about this some, and I mentioned a a quote from Polycarp. He he was taught directly by the apostle John, and they were getting ready to execute him. And he said something, he said, we we're, Instructed to give honor to them, and then he goes on to say, "As long as they do us no harm." And if you look, and I mentioned this in that episode. If you look, if you look at the state, if you look at the government, there is not one thing that I can find that they are doing that is not harming somebody somewhere <laughs> with their actions. So th- that being said, and understanding that, when it, when I read that, because I've read this book and. I guess I just kept missing this point, but when he, when I read it and I, I was like, wait a second, this makes sense. They are harming us. So we are, why, why should we honor them? If they're if they, and, you know, taxation is harming somebody somewhere and they're using those taxes to harm somebody else along the
0: way. So I don't see any reason to honor them. Well, you know, I think it plays into a sort of larger understanding of authority and, uh, one of the difficulties is is that when we're children, and uh, our parents are or our guardians or whoever are telling us we need to do X, y, or Z, and we don't want to do x, y or z, or we don't see the reason for x, y, or z, or so on and so on. You know, often enough, and most of the time it's uh, they're they're not totally wrong about it, a parent will say, "Well, look, you don't have to understand why. I have authority." Even God given authority over you. You are my child. I am your parent. You know you need to do what I'm telling you. So on and so on. So, like I say, in uh, probably well, with with God fearing, loving parents, you know that is largely the case. Uh, but it's not that it's a mistake to inculcate in a child's mind that a parent's authority is unlimited or is uh, somehow totalitarian or not, you know, hedged by the law of God in some way, you know, so that if a parent said, hey, go into that uh, convenience store and steal me a six pack or something or whatever, that somehow the child would be freed from moral constraints and then, you know, be justified in obeying their parents or whatever, and doing something wrong. Or if the parent is abusive, right? So if, they're, if the parent is undermining, really, the, what their God-given authority is and is not using that power to nurture and love and uh, edify and guide and direct and discipline their child properly, if they're doing that improperly, that is not – they don't have authority from God to do that. You don't have authority from God as a parent to mistreat your kids. So anyway, from just from the earliest point in our lives, uh, we can you know have a distorted sense of authority, and that can play into this idea that well you know they're in charge or whatever. Just gotta gotta do what they say. You know, a manager or a boss in a workplace or something, what they say. You know, within of course limits uh, that most people probably recognize what they say goes, but it's not because their authority is somehow unlimited or that's the nature of authority. It's because of ownership, <laughs> right? Or or the nature of your contract or something like that. And uh, civil governance authority doesn't have the same scope or doesn't cover the same things that apply in other spheres of life like family life, uh parental child relationship, employer employee relationship. You know, it has to do with a very definite limited uh area of things. And so I think failing to understand that can, you know, lead to these confusions about what legitimate authority in the political realm is and you know whether we have to do what they say or not, or whether God obligates us morally to go along with whatever the government says.
1: And I want people to go check out your article and read it in its entirety. You can find it at the Libertarian Christian Institute. Um, talked about having a nomadic lifestyle, and this is interesting to me because, to be honest, I am a natural homebody. I like—I don't travel a lot. If I do travel, I'm going to see family or, or something, but. I'm very curious. Of what was your is your nomadic lifestyle by choice or is it just something that has happened along you know just throughout your life?
0: Um, well, prob- pro- honestly, probably a mixture. There's a good a bit of it in a way. I mean, some things that just happen just happen because you've made certain choices. <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I think I think uh, not not being afraid to leave home. Or not being so attached to what is familiar—probably a better way to put it—so that I couldn't uh, leave those things behind uh, well enough. I don't know. I think came came to me in early age, having traveled some, right? So I spent some my middle school years in Europe. When I graduated high school, uh, I had a gap year, so to speak, before I went to college. And I lived in Japan for a year, and I taught English. So that was one of my first experiences teaching English, which I was to do later. And yeah, then I you know, was about 10 hours away from my home in college, and then I moved around a bit, kind of at the beginning, looking for, I guess, sort of exploring possible, you know, what might be a possible niche for me. So I was, I was looking for... Productive things to do, and so that's what led me out to California for a while, and then I was able to finish my BA in Canada, and then I had opportunity to study in the Netherlands, <laughs> and uh, but then when I came back and uh, wasn't able to uh, finish my degree at that time, and I had considered teaching English again, that led me overseas pretty. Naturally, so I spent some time in Cambodia uh, for about a year, and then I lived in Beijing, China for about four years or three three years, sorry, for about three years in Beijing. And then uh, most recently, I was in Budapest, Hungary uh, for four years teaching English. And yeah, so I think it was the opportunities that presented themselves scratching by. As it were, uh, looking for a way to maintain a livelihood and other opportunities to study that have uh, led me around the U.S. and the world a bit. Well, it sounds like it, a lot of it has to do with
1: school. A lot of your travels have a lot to do with school.
0: Yeah, the uh, going to Canada and um, and the Netherlands. That's cool. Like I, I
1: didn't ever go to college. I. Graduated high school and I was pretty well done with school <laughs> after that. I was not a great student, and I just really was very bored there and did not have any interest in furthering my education. That's one thing I'm thankful for about being in the print industry: is you, when you get into it and you stick with it, especially at a young age, you can it can you can make some money doing it, and it's been a, a, a huge blessing for me. But
0: yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, I'm I'm a supporter of uh. You know vocational training and avoiding college debt and all that kind of thing i th- I think those are excellent ways, to-
1: oh yeah, I don't know if you're if you're familiar with uh, Dave Ramsey or not, but i I started listening to him some, and i was i was I had quite a bit of debt, and I was able to kind of follow his steps and it got me out of debt. but I would listen to his podcast, and these people would call in and the amount of student loan debt they were in I could, just could not believe it. I mean, how much student loan debt these folks had and I, I'm so thankful now that I did not do that. Cause I wouldn't have had any interest in going to college and then finding out that I had to pay for it too. So, but yeah, if I'm, I'm all about people educating themselves and, and, and furthering their education, because I think it's important any way you can find it. Well, man, um, this has been a cool conversation. Is there anything you want to plug before I let you go?
0: Uh, maybe I'll send you some links uh, for the show notes page um, I guess I could – I have a, uh, a kind of um, web bio profile if people are interested. Um, I can put that up, and I'll, and I'll send you some links. Of course, the link to the Romans 13 article on the Libertarian Christian website, maybe that link to that uh, recent uh, panel discussion with some friends on answering objections, and I'll probably just send out yeah, a, a couple – more articles, let's say that I I found helpful, or that your listeners, you know, might benefit from as they're thinking through these issues and wanting to discuss these things with their friends and family. Maybe I'll send you uh, a link to uh, me singing a song or, or s- something of a personal nature. <laughs> 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 if people are interested in that kind of thing. So it's not all academic. <laughs> all right, man.
1: Okay, <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on and keep doing what you're doing, man. All right, you too, Craig. I really appreciate your work. I, I appreciate that. We're we're having a lot of fun with the project, and I'm I'm really thankful that it's resonated with people. And I think I told you this before we started recording that I'm just as surprised as anybody that it has taken off the way it has. And I'm I'm very thankful for people like you just reaching out to me and letting me know because nobody's going to beat me up more than I am. And I'm very critical of myself. So when I listen to our podcast and everybody else that comes on the show is so much smarter than me. And I just feel like this guy behind the mic that's bumbling and rumbling. I'm a big proponent of getting people's voices out there because I think the more people... The, the more perspectives we have, the, the better we're going to be off in the future. And it's going to maybe maybe we can spread this a little further. You know, it's a small platform, obviously, but I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for it. It's been, a, it's been a blessing to be able to talk to everybody that comes
0: on because I've learned so much just with this project. Well, there we go. Uh, that's the uh, benefit of community. So we're individualists after a fashion, but we're not atomists. And <laughs> we all learn from each other. And yes, yeah, that's, that's as it should be. Uh, I remembered one more thing that I want to plug um, in the reformed libertarianism, Facebook discussion group, as well as the reformed anarchism, Facebook discussion group, um, we have uh, sister statements, so to speak for each of those groups, sort of just our basic position on uh Christian view of uh, politics and society and culture. So, I don't know, by the time this episode airs, uh, maybe that will be out already, hopefully. So, just uh, people can look for that. All right, cool. Yeah,
1: I've, and I've told you this. I don't, I don't subscribe to the Reformed ideology, but I don't have a problem with it. You know what I'm saying? I, a lot of that stuff goes over my head, and I, do, I try to keep my, my understanding of the Bible very simple. And I just kind of just, I'm a very Jesus-centric type person, so all of that other stuff. Like I'm in this, we're in the same group, the anarcho-Christian group. There's a lot of debates that go on about stuff and I stay out of them. It just doesn't do me
0: any good. Yeah. Well, I I just try to provide uh, more than the debates in a Facebook group on on that kind of thing. I just try to provide resources for people who are curious. Uh, Maybe I can do that too. Uh, Send you something on Reformed Christianity in case people are saying, well, what exactly is it? Because we didn't quite talk about it. If they want to get a perspective from someone who self-identifies as a reformed Christian, then yeah, I'll send you a link on that, that your readers can look at. Something non-polemical that just kind of lays out what we're about. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and I think, and you know, I'm sure we have people that
1: listen that are of the same mindset that you are and they'll appreciate this conversation. I, you may be the, well, no, I had Carrie Baldwin on too, but y'all two I think are the only ones I've had on that have, That follow that line of thinking, and y'all are both very intelligent. So I'm going to hold what y'all have to say in high regard, just because of that fact. Y'all don't, y'all don't beat people over the head with it. Y'all just this is this is how we believe, and this is it, and then kind of go on about it. And I appreciate that too. Like I think that's a lot of those debates when people are trying to beat each other up with them. I think that's what turns me off to it the most. I have no problem learning about it. And who knows, maybe it'll change my mind. I don't know. But, you know, I I like to learn as much as I can and maybe that's something I can learn more about, not for any other reason, just to have some more information. All right, buddy. I appreciate it, man. And I'm going to let you go and get back
0: to your day. I really appreciate your time. All right. Well, thanks for talking. Thanks for having me on. Talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about The Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com.